Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to Startup Nightmares. Startup Nightmares is a podcast that aims to inspire those who work in the startup world to do the best work they can, the best way possible, while dodging some bullets doing so. Let's just be a bit more human here. All of these people started needing stuff from me. Don't feel like you're on your own because you're, you're never on your own. But I'm paying this person a good wage. Why isn't that enough? And that doesn't make me special. What is making me special is my deeper story. People need a sense of purpose to feel motivated in their job. Wake up at five in the morning and like go to the gym for an hour. Like, what the fuck is that? You're sitting at your desk crying and you're like, what happened? I had no idea how to monetize anything. I was like, ah, everybody gets a title, you get a title, you get a title. Either pay me or I will sue you. All of our guests have been to the dark side of the innovation ecosystem and came back to tell their tale. You can use this, this is how you get there. It is not a secret anymore. My name is Tal Shmueli and I will be your host. Tal, welcome to the show. We have about an hour to talk about some of the things that uh, are unique to your professional career. And let's kick off with the basics. Who are you? What do you do? And why do you do it? I'm Tal Tachner. I'm a venture capitalist at Pico Venture Partners. Um, and I invest in startups. And I do it because I love working with entrepreneurs and helping them realize their dreams. How long have you been doing this? I've been investing for almost six years. Six years. But you're quite young. Is that a common thing to see? A young woman who's been her entire career or the majority of her career in investing? I think different people come from, from different backgrounds. I knew very early on that this is what I wanted to do. So uh, I've been going at it for quite a while. How early on? Like baby early or like? Not baby early. Um, when I was a baby or... Uh, younger than I am today, I wanted to be go into foreign service. Um, it was my dream to live and travel around the world and tell the Israeli phenomenal story. Um, and somehow I realized that I can do similar things through by telling the Israeli economic phenomenal story. Um, and that's what kind of drew me into venture capital and into working with startups and into helping them scale globally. And I feel that today I get to do all of that um, from a different aspect of the story. What about this uh, um, seat of the enabler draws you so much? It's a really great question. Um, I started my path as a social entrepreneur. 
Um, and I think, you know, my ability to connect the dots and to create great networks enabled me to be the enabler and be able to provide that type of value. I worked with early stage entrepreneurs very early on in my career and helped connect them to opportunities globally. And from there, the transition to venture capital was was fairly easy. I just had to learn the basics of how to invest. Okay, so let's take a linear approach here. What was your first real adult's job? Selling lemonade outside my garage door. <laughs> how old were you? Probably like nine or eight, eight or nine. Like, was it um, natural, organic, sugar-free lemonade or from concentrate type thing? It was uh, natural, organic lemonade um, with, yeah, half a teaspoon of sugar to make it a bit sweet. <laughs> And for the less healthy people, we also had a pink lemonade from powder. Pink lemonade from powder? Pink lemonade from powder. Yeah, it's the mm. American less healthy style. Okay. We had it. two options. <laughs> so between 9 and 18, running the, the, the lemonade stand, joining the military? <laughs> yes, I was, uh, I was running the operations room of an exercise. In F-16 squadron in the Army. I did that for about two years. Uh, Running so, the operation room of an F-16 squadron. What does a day <laughs> look like? Um, so everything from um, pilot training to missions to intelligence um, and to making sure, um, if you look at it, if you compare it to kind of a... You, to the startup position, you can compare it to a COO type of, uh, mm -hmm. type of position or... or operational type of role, where you basically have to streamline the entire process of the day, plan the next day, plan 10 steps ahead as well, and make sure that all the, all the pilots are well-trained, all the missions are set out correctly, the intelligence is, uh, is done properly, and that everything kind of happens, uh, happens smoothly throughout so the day. So at the age of 19, you were ordering combat fighter pilots around, telling them, do this, do that. No, you can't go on the plane. You haven't filled in your... go on the plane sheet yeah um not go go on the plane sheet but more they can't fly unless they've had breakfast seriously <laughs> well that's one rule yeah i, for I, sure. I wouldn't want to go on an airplane and absorb 10 g's with breakfast especially not military breakfast in my stomach uh we have good breakfast in the squadron uh, special cooks and everything air force versus infantry i ate <laughs> leaves i picked up myself for breakfast Did they ever took you for spin in one of those airplanes? Can't say. <laughs> <laughs> Can't say. Fair enough. Uh, so at around the age of 20 or so, you leave the army. The young girl probably want to do some stuff that is not, you know, regimented as military services. What was the process of readjusting to civilian life? So first of all, I took a year off. Um, and, and backpacked from Argentina to Mexico to kind of clear, clear my head, came back to Israel, decided um, that I don't want to live in Tel Aviv for the near future. And before, um, before studying at university, I took another couple of months to live in the desert um, and work in agriculture and education. And, uh, and from there, I went on to university. What did you study? I studied international relations in Chinese. Have you ever used what you learned in university in real life? <laughs> <laughs> university in real life. I can talk a whole hour about, um, about higher education and how it prepares you for life. My answer is going to be in two parts. Um, on one hand, yes. Um, I think through university, I learned a lot of, a lot of uh, critical thinking skills um, that helped me kind of prepare for, for what I want to do in life. 
I did use my Chinese for a couple of years, my Mandarin. Um, but, uh, you know, I have a lot of criticism on, on higher education and the way it um, does or does not prepare you for, for the workforce. Um, in terms of the soft skills and hard skills I needed to succeed, I felt that I, I, I didn't receive what, what I wanted to um, from university. Six years in to your journey as an investor, what are some of the things you learned throughout those uh, six years? I think the biggest, uh, the biggest thing I learned is not to be afraid of failure. It's, it's, a, it's very much part of the process. I learned that you know, in order to succeed, you need to really develop a growth mindset. You need to be very agile. You need to move very quickly. Um, you need to adapt quickly to changes and you need to be very ready to take big risks and, uh, and stand behind what you believe in, in a very meaningful way. So it's funny because VCs need to know what the startup life cycle is and the decision making and all the different things that the startup founders need to take into equation when, when considering their next step, business model, etc. But the business models of startups and VCs are fundamentally different because the business model of a VC firm takes into account that 60, 70, 80%, sometimes even more, will fail. Whereas if you look at the business plan Nine for a startup, <laughs> if you look at the business model of a startup, it's exponential growth at all times uh, uh, forever. And it's like, in that regard, VCs has to be so optimistic, but also so pessimistic and realistic to protect themselves, whereas startups have to keep selling a vision, a story of success. How do you balance what you know about reality and, and the statistics and what you see in entrepreneurs' presentations? You have to be an optimistic rationalist um, to a sense. So you have to have incredible conviction that the team in front of you is the one that's going to set the company best up for success. Um, you have to have, in my opinion, some type of industry know-how um, and a lot of times it's just pure luck that you can't, uh, you can't that you can't plan. You, you can't ignore it. Uh, you can't ignore the, the luck part of the equation. But thinking that there is such a huge ecosystem of VCs and angel investors and accelerators and innovation hubs and governmental uh, funding and so on, it can't all just be luck, right? Depends who you ask. <laughs> no, it's not all lucky. There's, there's a lot of hard work um, that goes into building mm -hmm. um, startups and, and success stories. Um, but there's a very fine line between exponential success and exponential failure. Um, and you constantly battle with that line. The path to success is never linear. And I think entrepreneurs have to have incredible grit and resilience in order to be able to live through all of those cycles towards success. So you sit in a room and you've got entrepreneurs pitching you and the business model works and everything is patented and protected technology-wise. The chemistry between them is terrific. And then they leave the room and in a way you lose control over what's happening. How does that feel trusting them with executing the plan that you agreed on when you know there is so much uncertainty and change in, in market dynamics? I have to have incredible high conviction that the entrepreneurs and the team is is going to succeed and they're the best they're the they're the ones that are going to set the company up for success that has to be an underlying parameter of my of my decision making 
And in terms of my own investment thesis, it's something I spend a lot of time on, working with the team, understanding their what drives them. Why are they starting this company? Why are they going to succeed through that endless cycle of hardship? Um, what what motivates them? And then thinking about kind of, how, are they execution-driven? Are they action-oriented? Are they mission-driven? Are they going to be able to hire the best team? Do they understand the market? And are they going to be able to hack a go-to-market strategy um, that'll help them succeed? Your specialty is, is earlier stages, right? Yes. How can you gauge and even give or get you know, reasonable answers to these questions with people who are doing their, usually their first startup? Would it be fair? We have serial entrepreneurs that are extremely coachable and extremely willing to, to listen to other people's perspective. Ultimately, they'll make their own decisions and we choose them because, because they're the best to, to make those decisions. Um, but they are willing to, to get feedback. And then you have first-time entrepreneurs that, that might be less experienced or haven't been through that emotional and professional cycle before. And some are, sometimes they can be more arrogant. Sometimes they can be more coachable. It's people. Um, it's about investing in people. Um, and when I choose the entrepreneurs to work with, I choose ones that, that I have great chemistry with, that I believe are values and mission-driven and have some type of edge to, to the market or to the technology um, that we can leverage um, and that I want to work day over day uh, with them in order to, to set their company up for success. A few years ago when... when entrepreneurship became mainstream where startups started becoming a part of every working professional's journey there were all sorts of uh, all sorts of knowledge was starting to come out from how to pitch how to build an investor deck uh, a lot of uh, books around the uh, investment life cycle and how to raise and how to be smarter than your VC or smarter than your lawyer it's not an information problem anymore do you feel that this um, overload of information, of, of information availability, is it doing a good service to the ecosystem or is it doing a disservice by preparing entrepreneurs and molding them into a very predictable, somewhat a, a unsophisticated modus operandi? I don't think anything about preparation um, can make you unsophisticated. Um, I think the entrepreneurs that I meet are much more prepared today They know how to tell their story. They know how to pitch their company. Do they also know how to kind of camouflage or get around the stickier parts of a conversation? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. Depends how sophisticated they are. Um, but it's our job to kind of dive dive deeper into the numbers and into the story. I think knowledge is power. It's power for the VC and it's power for the entrepreneurs. All these books and self-education are are great tools in order to succeed, right? You have you have books, podcasts, thought leaders teaching you go to market, business strategy, building up, setting up your company, hiring, how to be a better manager. These are all incredible tools that'll that'll help them succeed. Above that, they need also empathy, um, EQ, IQ, um, market knowledge, industry knowledge, humility, um, humility, grit, resilience. There's something so funny in these dynamics because before an investment is done, then it's scrutiny, right? You have to look at every graph, at every Excel sheet, at every contract, make sure that everything is tip-top the way it should be. And it could be an agonizing process, back and forth and back and forth, and lawyers and accountants and bookkeepers, uh, almost endless, right? And then after this uh, process, which is, you can say a lot of things, it, it's critical, you have to do it. Um, it can also be a trust-building exercise, of course, when people are behaving transparently and professionally. But after being putting the entrepreneurs to, through such scrutiny and, and contracts and negotiations, sometimes first negotiations, then the deal is signed and you have to become best friends and you have to re-earn their trust and their openness in order to help them and best position them for success. How do you manage that dynamic? It's a, it's a tough dynamic sometimes, um, but we, we consider ourselves very founder-friendly um, and we, we, have a shared, we have a shared goal, right? We want to create an incredible company and grow it to a huge, successful global story. Um, and once your values are aligned and your shared interests are aligned, you can get through any hurdle. What is the um, partnership like after an investment was signed? When do you meet your uh, companies? How do you collaborate with them? I know it varies greatly, but it does. give me the, uh, the, the template for how it should look. So we're, we're very hands-on and have an execution kind of mentorship approach in our fund. So because we invest very early stage, sometimes, sometimes pre-product or pre-MVP, um, sometimes you know, in pre-product market fit always, um, it takes a lot of it takes a lot of work and we very early on work with the work with the founders in a in a meaningful way sometimes we set up um, sometimes we set up by weekly meetings sometimes monthly meetings it also depends on the on the time and what the entrepreneur really needs but we do everything from ideation to productization to go to market strategy to business development to value propositions to positioning to market um, to um, hiring. Yes. Hiring is a huge key and a huge part of what we do, especially executive hiring, especially globally. 
um, when setting up shop in the U.S. or in Europe or in an alternative market that is in Israel where your network mm. isn't as strong. Um, these are very important factors um, that, that companies need in order to succeed. So you'd meet them on a bi-weekly. That would make you almost a part of the team. When I'm doing consulting, sometimes that's the, the cadence of, uh, of meetings I, I do with my entrepreneurs. But my job is to walk into the, into the room and ask that, sit around the table and ask them, what can I do to help you? What are your greatest challenges today? What do you need from me? And how can I be most helpful? And I go out and execute. Do they know what to even ask? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Sometimes we have more, uh, more strategic discussions around, you know, the value propositions of the company around, you know, the, what the customer needs. We call it kind of voice of the customer workshops around uh, market positioning and storytelling. And these are, these are kind of broader high level goals. And then we have more, um, more execution process driven goals around, you know, hiring and team building and culture around, you know, business development, go to market strategies, business plans, of course, pricing models. How big is the team over at Pico? We're four people on the investment team um, and about 10 people on the broader team. So the investment teams are the people who are looking into startups, making investment decisions. Exactly. What does the broader team include? Everything around uh, the value add that we bring to companies, um, around hiring, around value propositions, around business development, value creation, and all of those other aspects that help startups win. So when you invest in an early stage startup, what's the headcount over there, typically? Typically, it's just two, three, sometimes four founders. So naturally, they don't have business development. They don't have a hiring manager or, or an HR person. These are product, tech, marketing, business people who just want to build something very preliminary and you provide them with that extra help of, oh, wow, okay, you need to uh, hire a, an executive product uh, person, we'll help you out. Oh, wow, you need to do a um, business development in order to potentially penetrate a foreign territory, then here's of some resources that can help you out. Is this how... Yes, we have a very unique model of value add where we have a U.S. team that really focuses on value creation, business development, and helping the companies gain additional customers in the U.S. So instead of setting up shop in the U.S. for each and every startup, they can go through the Pico angle first, start popping around, setting up the foundations, getting some traction, and only then come up with the actual expansion? Exactly. So the, our U.S. team sits in New York and they mm -hmm. serve as a landing pad for companies entering the U.S. market. So they can have meetings there. They have office space. They have a team that helps them open up uh, opportunities for them. Hiring is a, big, uh, is a big key. And we're really developing a very strong business network in order to help our companies go to market faster. So the past few months have been turbulent. Along with adversity, there were a lot of good things that were happening and new opportunities. And Pico was one of the most successful VCs to survive the pandemic to date. Can you walk us through what happened with Spot and uh, Vroom? Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been quite a whirlwind um, as we're kind of setting up the companies for success and going line by line budget. And really, I felt a, a great responsibility um, for all the employees that we have in all the companies. You know, we had two really great success stories, um, Spot. Um, one of our first investments um, in in fund one was uh, was acquired by NetApp um, in uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And Vroom, which is our first investment, 
um, which we also incubated. The first investment. First fund investment. It's what formed Pico. Um, IPO'd a couple weeks ago as well. Um, and a market cap of five and a half billion dollars today. When I first read about Voom, the company was valued at 2.5 billion. So it had doubled since. Yes. Went up 117% in its first trading day. That is ridiculous. How long were you guys waiting to add this feather to your head of a successful IPO? Um, it's been a, it's, it's been a process. Uh, it took us uh, less than five. It took us about five years. That's very quick for an IPO. Fairly quickly. We were the first institutional round in the company um, in uh, 2014-2015. And uh, within uh, two years, uh, grew the company to, to about $2 billion in sales. And from there, um, brought in an incredible executive team. We brought in the former CEO of Priceline to lead the company um, and some other great executives. And uh, the company skyrocketed to where it is today. So we're throwing some terms into the space and uh, maybe let's double click on them. Uh, Spot, who was sold for 450 million, right? That's the number? It's according to public. Uh, according to public. Okay. <laughs> Tal, you read the newspaper now. No, <laughs> um, so roughly a half a billion, uh, half a billion dollars. Um, what did the company do? The company does a cloud optimization spending for enterprises. So basically working with huge corporates um, on identifying where the cloud isn't utilized to the fullest and where they can optimize costs. When companies exit in such a manner, <laughs> in a spectacular manner, that's, that's amazing. But when they do it on the backdrop of a global pandemic, that's even more remarkable. And when we said about how, uh, how sometimes the generic, the investment process could be, and how the uh, how templated the relationship between VC and founders can get, I think it's those times where you're able to persevere and and, and cross the chasm um, in doing adversity. This is where a VC's strength really, really lies. When you speak about your work with entrepreneurs, your eyes light up. Like it's it's clearly the best part of your day. Did you ever stop and think maybe this is what I should be doing full time rather than being the enabler? I think about it a lot, um, but uh, I have very high conviction in where I am today and the value that I can provide today. Part of what I love about my job is that I get to work with a lot of different companies in a lot of different sectors and a lot of different fields, companies in different stages already today. My work is very diverse. It's very dynamic. I'm not deep diving only in one company. I'm streamlined across, uh, across quite a few, and it's something that gets me excited every morning. Every day is new. Every day is different. Every day... I get to, to learn about new processes, new sectors, new fields, new verticals, new challenges, something that, that gets me extremely excited that I don't think um, I'd be as excited as uh, doing it internally in a company. Even in the most uh, generalist role, like a COO or a fast-moving company, even, even there, the bar of excitement would be different because everything you'll do will be towards one end, which is making this specific company successful. And where you're sitting... You have the leverage and the opportunity to work across industries, across stages, across markets, which, uh, which I totally get the, the excitement in that. That type of knowledge is not technical knowledge. It's not a, the know-how of how a, a, AI works or how, where machine learning is going. It's something more abstract. So how do you educate yourself and how do you keep evolving in that realm of, of expertise? I will never know technology 
um, better than my founders. My founders are the experts. I always um, take into account that technological problems are solvable and the Israeli founders are the best equipped to solve the problems. I will definitely not uh, not do that better than them in any sense of the way and, uh, and technolo- technological knowledge won't help me there. I do have advisors and mentors that understand technologies that can help me sometimes due diligence or companies that I speak to that can help me better understand if the, if the technology is worthwhile. But I almost always, um, I almost always take into consideration that the technology is not the issue. Um, it's around telling the story. It's about selling your vision. It's about solving a meaningful problem. It's about acquiring and, and assembling the best team equipped to uh, to take that to market. And that's where I think I, I can really excel around understanding the value proposition around storytelling and looking at the big picture, around helping my companies execute and define those KPIs, hire the best people to make it happen. I have a trick question for you, okay? Are you ready? Yes. You have an extremely high bar for yourself. Extremely ludicrous, unreasonable at times, if you ask me, uh, the standard in which you operate, personally, professionally. How do you enforce that on others, or do you enforce that on others? I can't enforce my level of professionalism on anyone else. I can lead by example. Um, I can set a very high bar for myself and hope that others will strive to, to meet that standard. Um, and thank you for the compliment. <laughs> Something I noticed about myself is that sometimes I would judge people according to how their solution matches my solution. So if I face a problem and I had an idea about how to solve it and you'd give your idea, I'd be like, ah, seven out of 10, because, you know, she's not, she hasn't mentioned my idea. She has her idea. Fair enough. But mine is better. Not very constructive at times. But I mean, it's quite different when you work with people who have knowledge from different types of uh, worlds. So, so how do you know what you don't know? I guess that's what I'm aiming to, uh, to ask. How do you mitigate what you don't know with what you have to know? You don't know what you don't know. There are always blind spots. Um, but there's a lot you can do to, to make yourself more knowledgeable. And I think part of my job is learning very quickly about new industries and about new verticals and about new processes um, new technologies and new solutions and trying to constantly bridge that gap. Um, but blind spots are there. Um, you don't always, you don't see them necessarily. But um, if you know that there are blind spots in the process, you can do a lot um, in order to try and find them um, and solve them. One way to overcome these types of blind spots would be working in an investment committee, which is, I guess, the difference between being an angel investor and working in a VC. Um so you are part of PICO's investing committee. Yes. What does that committee do? What does the flow look like? So uh, different members of the investment committee bring different opportunities to the table every week. Um, and, um, and our job as, as the committee is to ask very tough questions. It's not because we're not supportive of one another. It's because we want to help the other person develop high conviction in the team, in the product, in the market, so in the competitive landscape. Kind of like... Defend your argument so you'll make sure that, that you're confident in it. Exactly. So we present, we, we have a whole framework for, for how, we, how we make decisions and how we present companies and kind of pros and cons. And then we have, uh, you know, we develop the investment thesis and we talk about, you know, risks, rewards and, and all of that. But I think the core part 
of of the conversation is you know asking tough questions and helping maybe the other person understand the blind spots or the risks sometimes you know we fall in love with ideas we fall in love with the entrepreneurs and that type of uh, critical thinking and and process is extremely important having said that you know there there's a lot um a lot of people tend to say in uh, in venture capital that consensus is not a good thing around the table that a lot of times the biggest success stories were actually the ones that were most controversial so we don't necessarily have consensus around the table around every investment but we do take into consideration every question every risk um and it's a big part of our process that's fascinating so part of your work would be to find potential deals or companies to invest in right so Oh, my cousin has this company they're doing this or that, or my friend, or I have an idea, and I'd come to you and and you take a meeting, you'd give me fifteen minutes or an hour, whatever, and then you're like, "Okay, interesting, you took what you have heard from me, you'd put it in some sort of a template that you can present, make sure that you answer all the questions that will come up in the investment committee and and you pitch the company back to the investment committee. Is this some um, place where you show up a kind of like humble and egoless or is this a place where you go in like it's a TED event you're pitching you're selling the company like what's the dynamic inside I think it's a combination of two I want to have very high conviction of the company and the investment opportunity when I bring it to the table but I, on the other hand I want to be humble enough in order to be able to receive the feedback and ask the right questions and understand where my blind spots are and sometimes um, I'm convinced um, that you know there's more digging to be done. Um, or that the opportunity has more risks than I initially thought, and especially when I have an investment committee of very experienced executives and founders um, and investors that that have been at it for for twenty twenty five years and have seen a lot more than I have, but on the other hand, also ready to really fight for the companies that I believe um, are going to be big success stories so let's say uh, I lift the hood over that dynamic because if I'm a young entrepreneur and i uh, or not young but just an entrepreneur and I pitch and I have an amazing meeting with you, part of your job would be to establish reports to create a, a an informal how to how conversation around what's going well, what's not going well, and kind of kind assess my personal personality idea and so on and I could leave a meeting feeling amazing and that's a genuine connection. We connected, we hit it off, you like the idea, the questions were good, I need to do some homework, fair enough. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to go to the next round because I need to convince you in my idea in a way that you can then sell to others. And that's a very hard dynamic for an entrepreneur to live in because you have to influence via proxy, via someone else. What advice would you give entrepreneurs about this dynamic and how to go about it successfully? That's a really great question. Um, I think that successful entrepreneurs will know how to navigate that because they're the ones that are going to have to eventually also sell their companies um, and tell the stories and have people connect to the mission and vision of the company. I think just being authentic, genuine, um, and presenting the pros and cons Um, is something that's going to be very helpful. A lot of times I see entrepreneurs that are, this is the best company. We have no, com- we have no competition. There aren't risks. This is the best, the best thing Our you can invest in. Our market is infinite. Infinite. We all know that isn't true. Even Uber, you know, had a com- competition, which was the regular cabs, right? And I think, you know, we, we want to invest in people that also know where the challenges are and also know maybe where their blind spots are, where they're going to need help. It's a big part 
of, uh, of the process. So also telling the big story and the market opportunity and why your team is the best equipped to succeed in a certain market or, or create the best product or technology or, you know, solve a certain issue. But on the other hand, also be very, very, very aware to what you're missing and to where you're going to need help, to what the challenges are, to what the competition landscape looks like, because we're going to find out anyway, because we're going to dig into that. And I think, you know, presenting it, um, presenting it in, in kind of a, in a pros and cons or into, uh, or into, a framework that that we can already understand, you know, where where we can be helpful. I would say that fifty percent is about crafting a very compelling story and the narrative and, and selling the dream, which the other fifty percent should be scrutinizing your own company, understanding where where the reasons not to invest in it and try and say, listen, I know this is a competitive market. I know we're not the first ones to enter it. I know it's going to be, I don't know, it's going to take a lot of money to get this off the ground and try and put in the more critical thinking hat. But the dynamic in a pitching scenario is sometimes that you want to be able to answer every question. And if you're standing in front of someone with at least a little bit of experience, they would call out the bullshit as they see it. I had a startup one time, have a slide, why not to invest? Um, I thought it was uh, I thought it was very funny, but they were they were selling a huge vision in the food industry, something that requires a lot of regulation and a lot of user acquisition and a lot of adoption. Um, there were a lot of risks involved and a lot of uh, a lot of challenges. And, you know, they put it straight up in that slide. And I was like, OK, good. At least they know what they're in for. Right. Yeah. I can then decide whether it's worthwhile for me to take the risk or not. Um, but at least they're aware of all the risk and they don't live in fantasy land. So I'm not saying necessarily to put in a why don't invest slide, but I am uh, I am saying that it's very important to also understand kind of the challenges and, and where the challenges are, where the opportunities lie as well. But yes, sometimes we, we ask entrepreneurs tough questions and uh, the best thing they can do is say, that's a great question. Haven't thought about that yet. Let us do some research and get back to you. It's okay not to know. But they feel like this is when, this is this is the, place where, where the decision will be made you're no. saying i normally have a hunch whether i want to invest or not within probably the first i want to say 10 minutes of a meeting and then i can either talk myself in or out but it's a process it's a process of getting to know each other we're building a partnership it's like a catholic marriage right you can't even get divorced until there is an exit or you close shop hopefully never it's a process of getting to know each other, of getting, of, of making sure that the dynamic is, is, is great. Aside from the market opportunity and aside from the product and aside from the technology as people, especially when you invest very early stage, I don't have too many P&Ls to look at. I don't have um, too many customers to speak to. Sometimes it really is just a presentation and it's all about the people. It's all about the founders and the entrepreneurs. And I spend a lot of time getting to know them and spending time with them and understanding their their mission their vision what drives them what are their values why are they building what they're building um and you know whether whether it coincides with with what i'm excited about what are you excited about these days oh wow i'm excited about so much i'm excited about fixing broken business processes in in ancient industries i'm excited about taking new technologies to market i'm excited about innovative business models but more specifically i'm excited about you know products that are going to change the way we live, uh, the way we experience life, impact, you know, the way uh, the way we work. Um, I'm looking a lot into the future of work right now. How we're going to eat. I'm looking a lot into food tech right now. 
what we're going to eat, how we're going to look, what the future food is going to look like. <laughs> healthcare, healthcare is something that's that's huge right now, especially in a global pandemic. I've been looking at healthcare for quite a while. So, you know, how can we use AI to cure cancer or to develop drugs and take them to market faster? How can we create better interactions and communications between doctors and patients? How can we right now create better remote care? Um, and this is a this is a huge industry that needs disruption that I'm personally also extremely extremely excited about. Entrepreneurship has a has a stereotype of being a young people's game, but the industries you're excited about are deep technology, heavily regulated industries. How do you balance the drive and ambition and the tolerance for risk young people have with the complexity and the gravity of the problems you guys would want to help solve? Yeah, it's a it's a tough process, and it takes uh, it takes time to to hack to hack some of those things. Um, but that's where you create meaningful change, right? Who thought that you're going to go online, buy a car, get it delivered to your house without seeing it, without, you know, and having that type of user experience, that Amazon type of experience? It's It was such a huge vision. Um, and, um, and that's where things get really exciting, right? It's, 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 it's a huge risk sometimes. And sometimes, you know, the regulation or the, the processes that, and, and the sales cycles can be straining and a reason not to invest, but where we believe that, um, that there's great value in a place that really is, is in the need of, of disruption and where the value proposition is so strong, we believe that we can sell anything. So the workforce today is characterized by a lot of shifts and changes and moves. Employees leave a workplace after 18 months, give or take. How does that turnover influence the ability of a founder to carry out a vision? And how do you think about these changes when you're doing an investment that will only bear fruits in five to 10 years? Yeah, so that's a great question. I'll answer it from from two points. I'll start with the, with the founder approach. So part of the process and part Part of the investment process and the due diligence that I do with founders, as I mentioned previously, is really understanding what motivates them um, and why they're building what they're building and what motivates them in order to to make sure that they have that grit and resilience that'll take them through that 10-year process, right? They have to be extremely excited about what they do. They have to have extreme resilience to go through that tough process. Um, and they have to be extreme optimists, as we mentioned earlier, into not taking no, you know, and failure as as a as a possibility, um, and choosing the right founders in order to do that is part of the process. In terms of building teams, right? You also want founders that are able to motivate other people and are are able to unify people around the vision of the company, so that people want to go through the long run with them. Right? That's 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 a big part of building building a company up for success. On the other hand, I've been spending a lot of time looking at looking at that problem from a corporate level. Uh, we invested in a company called Gloat that actually aims to solve exactly that issue for for huge enterprises, right? That spend about six months and a lot of money training new employees into the company. Um, and then having them leave after between 18 to 24 months and understanding what drives the millennial workforce and soon to be Gen Z workforce um, today and, and how to how to retain them over time and keep them excited um, is something that that's critical to solve. So the barrier of entry on one hand is very low because with a laptop and a Wi-Fi in a coffee shop, I can start a company that will go, you know, far into the future. On the other hand, the bar for professionalism is getting increasingly higher. 
in terms of what do I need to be able to do as a manager, as a product person, as a marketeer, and so on and so forth. So what is the um, starter kit for seeking an investment? What do I need to demonstrate and bring with me in order to get a meeting with you and secure potentially the next one? So first of all, solve a meaningful problem um, and showcase that it's a meaningful problem and that you have a viable solution to take to market and that you have the ability or you and your team have the ability to build the market and to sell that as well. Um, I think those are those are the crucial points, right? So you have to convince me that the problem is big enough, that it's a, you, you have the ability to create a $100 million revenue business out of your out of that problem with your solution, that you have the right team to solve it technologically or create or create the the product that's going to win and that you have knowledge of the industry in order to take that to market in a meaningful way. So in a sense, save you a lot of the research and show, listen, I've come prepared, I've done that. I don't need you to work for me in, in, in testing this idea. Yeah, I know you will, but at least I've done a lot of it myself. Uh, I get that. Convince me that your, um, that your product is, is valuable. How, do you, how are you going to do that? By speaking to potential customers, by building maybe an MVP and showing initial traction with, uh, with, a, potential, uh, with a potential customer. Um, show me that you're able to build maybe something out of that technology or, or that you have you know, the technological team or the product-oriented team that can do that. Convince me that the market is huge. Show me how you're going to sell it. Would Tell it be, me the big story. Would it be fair to say that um, to, to kind of interpret what you're saying as in do as much as you can before seeking investment, like take it as far as you feasibly can before coming in and, and involving us, test it, build it, try it out, put it to the test. It can be scruffy, but there has to be something, right? If I'm going to invest in you, I want to make sure that you invest in yourself as well. And um, we want to see teams that are fully dedicated to the startup. And we want to see teams that have spoken to customers and potential clients um, and developed something initial, even if they don't have necessarily huge resources to do that, just to show us that they that they can and that they're in. You know what? I think this is a poor founder process, regardless of how it informs the investment process, because if you are willing to give an idea two or three years of your life, you want to make sure that there's something in it, that it's more than just a hunch. Ideas mean nothing without action. Got it. A lot of people have a lot of great ideas, but you know you have to, you have to take action and, and turn them into companies, and that takes a lot of work. Two final questions for me. One is well, people don't really know how competitive the VC landscape is. It's not just that startups are seeking for investors. It's also VCs competing for the right investments or for, for a stake in companies that have done things right and are showing traction. What does that competition look like for you? It's tough um, sometimes, right? Because you have a lot of companies, but you know, nine out of nine out of ten fail, one out of ten succeeds in a very meaningful way according to statistics. Um, and you really want to identify, you know, the best ideas and the best entrepreneurs. And I'm not alone in the game, right? There, there are how many 220, 240 VCs operating in Israel? Um, let's say 80% do early stage, 60% do early stage. 
Um, I have to take a look at the at the numbers. They they but keep the, changing, the but, but it's a substantial number of people um, running after running after the same uh, the same companies. So you have to make sure that you have edge, that you have value, that you bring something to the table that the entrepreneur is going to choose you, just like we choose them. So if I'm a founder and I'm looking for an investment, what should I expect or want to have in my investors? Good people. Um, people that will roll up the sleeves and work for you and support you, even if even in tough times, that are going to be your biggest cheerleaders for success and do everything in their power to help you succeed. I think that's I think that's key. I think the same way you would put into scrutiny why I'm the best person to solve a certain problem, then I should be doing the same with my VC saying, why are they so invested in me? What's in it for them in a way? That's on the higher level. On the micro level, what did you have to give up in order to keep competing and keep succeeding in such a fast-paced world? For me, I think it's balance. Um, you know, my, my career and my work means everything to me. In a very competitive field, um, you have to really do all you can in order to, to stand out and succeed and win the best deals. Um, and it means to constantly grow and learn and maintain a network um, and constantly work for the founders and provide value because founders are our biggest advocates and they're the biggest source of, of, uh, of, of deal flow, um, of great founders that are just like-minded um, and share their values um, that, that we want to, to invest in. So it's, going about, uh, it's about going out of your way in order to create some differentiation and preference among the founders and also identify quickly where and how you can add value to them. I think that's a competitive advantage that, uh, that any founder should be looking for in their VC. And I think that's something you demonstrate so, so well. We're just at the end of our time. Is there anything we haven't covered that you feel is critical for today's conversation? No, I think we, I think we covered, uh, you know, venture capital one-on-one. Um, you know how to how to talk and and interact with uh, with VCs and and what it'll take to you know some some of the parameters that that are crucial for success. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so so much for coming. Thank you for having me. So much fun. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Traffic jams tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? 
the federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.